morning, Mac family. We're excited that you're joining us today. And while we wish that we could be together, we're glad that you're here with us online. We want to thank everyone for continuing to support our ministry. And for those of you who would like to do so, you can do so by going to MarietaAdventist.org and clicking on Give. We thank you and we hope that you stay safe. We will be praying for everyone and all their families. Thank you so much and happy Sabbath. Hello, Mac family. Good morning and happy Sabbath. I'm glad that you chose to worship with us today. Wherever you are, maybe you're in your living room, you might be in your bedroom, who knows where you're watching this. Uh, you might be on Vimeo watching it from the link you got in your email, but I hope the majority of you are watching it on our Mac Facebook page where the majority of us will be. I so enjoyed last Sabbath interacting with all of those that were watching as well as you commented and, and we got to interact together. That was a lot of fun. It made me really miss my church. This Sabbath is Easter Sabbath, and if this was a normal Sabbath, we would have already eaten our wonderful brunch that is served to us on Easter Sabbath. We would be here in the sanctuary trying to find a seat. The choir would be warmed up, ready to go, and we'd be waiting to worship together. And while I wish that that's what we could be doing today, I'm still glad that we get to worship together. Today, our worship service is similar to the last several weeks in that we'll have interactive questions where you can ponder and think about them, maybe talk about them with your family. If you're on Facebook, I encourage you to comment in the comment section so that uh, we can see what you're saying and, and people can interact with each other. But today is a little bit special because we have several Mac members that have uh, recorded some songs that will help you in the contemplative moments during this message so that you can think through uh, different parts of who God is and what His character is like. We're taking a break from our sermon series, Faith Wins, that Pastor Luke and I have been preaching through, and we're uh, focusing today on the cross and what happened more than 2,000 years ago. Today's message is entitled, Heroes and Villains, and as we begin, I invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we worship in our own homes, we worship together because you're a God that unites people from afar. And as we think through the story of Jesus, that wonderful gift that you gave us, may we know you better at the end of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you've noticed that in every cartoon and in every comic and in every action movie, there's always a hero and a villain. Because I have two rambunctious boys, they're naturally drawn to action-packed things. And so when they watch shows on TV or Netflix, and I watch over their shoulder to see what they're watching and make sure, make sure, making sure it's okay, I've noticed that there's almost always a hero and a villain. When they watch PJ Masks, there's Gecko and Catboy and Owlette, these three kids that turn into these animals, if you will, and they save their community as they try to stay away from Romeo and Luna Girl. When they watch dino trucks, there's Ty and Tun Tun and Revit, these dinosaur building machines that have to save their community from the other dinosaur building machines called the Destructs. When they watch other shows like Rescue Bots, there's Heatwave and Optimus Prime and Blades and others that are robots, yet they have to save their community from the villain, Dr. Morocco, as he wreaks havoc on the, havoc on the community. 
if you watch pretty much any Disney movie, there's a hero and there's a villain. Whether it's from The Lion King or The Little Mermaid or even Frozen, there's always a good guy and a bad guy, a hero and a villain. Maybe you've never connected with any of those, but I bet you've watched some of the Marvel movies. Whether it's Iron Man or Thor or Spider-Man or uh, any one of the Marvel characters, the Avengers, there's always a hero and there's always a villain. In any action-packed show, you've got heroes and villains. And what happens is 99% of the time, the hero wins. So I have a question for you this morning, and as you're watching on Facebook or you're watching on uh, Vimeo, if there's a way for you to comment, please do, or if you just want to talk about it with your family, that's fine too. But here's the question, and I'll give you 30 seconds to answer the question. Here's the question. Who is your favorite superhero? Whether it's Marvel movies or comics or cartoons, every time I see battles, it reminds me of the great controversy between Christ and Satan, between good and evil, and I'm reminded of heroes and villains. This morning is Easter Sabbath, and we're focusing on the greatest story ever told, a story where atonement is made, a story where God's love is put on display for the whole universe to see. A story where the greatest loss becomes the greatest win. A story where God shows His grace in an irrational and unbelievable way. But before we get to the story of the cross, we have to begin a little further back. In fact, if you've got your Bible, you can follow along with me in Luke chapter 23. We're using the story, although it's found in all four Gospels, we're reading from Luke because he's a doctor and he's got some details in there that I appreciate. Now, we're not reading the passage together all the way through, but you can follow along. But to get you caught up on the story where we're going, Jesus has already had the Last Supper with his disciples. They're just humans. They're just men. Yet they're his best friends. He spent so much of his life with them, and they probably know him better than anyone else. And after the Last Supper, Jesus heads out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley, across from Jerusalem. And he goes there with Peter, James, and John, three of his closest friends. And the disciples, they look at him, and they realize that there's something different about Jesus. He's sad. He's silent. It's like he's discouraged. In fact, as he's walking, he seems to stumble and trip. And several times they rush to, to catch him as he's falling. And as they get close to him, they realize he's in agony. He's in pain. He's moaning. And as they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes a little further. And the three disciples wait for him as he continues on into the garden. And he lays face down on the ground, or, or maybe he's in the fetal position, or, or maybe he just kneels down, but he begins to pray, and he prays a prayer to his father as he's asking, is there any other way that we can do this? Yet I don't believe that Jesus was afraid of dying. 
I don't think that he was afraid of the pain of crucifixion. I don't think he was afraid of death. I think he was afraid that death might separate him from his father forever. In fact, one of my favorite inspired Bible commentators, Ellen White, she writes in the book, The Desire of Ages, which, by the way, I've been reading uh, several chapters from it this week. Uh, It's unbelievable the detail of the story of Jesus as he dies for us. So I encourage you, if you have a Desire of Ages, or you can look it up online for free, Read the chapters about Jesus and his death. It's unbelievable. She writes in the Desire of Ages, page 686, she says that Jesus felt that by sin, he was being separated from his father. And it must have felt like an ever-growing sin chasm between his father and him. And as Jesus is there kneeling in the garden... His body's giving up. The pressure of the weight of the sin of the world is on his body, his human body. In fact, the sweat coming out of his pores is blood because the pressure is crushing him. And as he's there in agony, wondering, can I physically go through this? Can my humanity withstand this? I don't want to fail the world. Satan shows up. That deceiver, that liar. And he comes and he whispers into Jesus' ear. He says, you can't do it. This is too much for one single person. You're all alone here. You're going to fail. And it's at that moment that the angel that took the vacated seat on the throne next to God the Father When when Lucifer was banished from heaven, he speeds down to the Savior's side with heaven's speed. And he whispers into Jesus' ear, you can do it. Look at all the people that you're going to save. You can do this. For the next 30 seconds, I want you to put yourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane next to Jesus. Maybe talk with the people that you're with or maybe comment in the, the Facebook comment box. But here's the question. You've got 30 seconds to answer it. If you had been there next to Jesus while he was praying, what encouragement would you have told him? As the encouraging angel leaves, a crowd, a mob, enters the garden. It's filled with Roman soldiers and priests and, and Judas. And Judas leads the way, except he's, he's acting. He's playing a charade. He's playing a game of make-believe as he tries to pretend like he's not about to throw Jesus to the wolves. He scurries on ahead of the mob, trying to disassociate himself from them, trying to make it look like he's not with them. And as he comes up to Jesus... He greets him with a, hey, buddy, and he gives him a kiss. As I've been thinking about this story all week, I've I've wondered how often do we come to Jesus with a Judas betrayal kiss? 
I mean, how often do we come to him with a, hey, buddy, like we're bros, like we're boys, like, like we're, we're real tight, and yet we turn around and stab him in the back with how we act and how we live. And what's crazy is, is that Jesus, before we ever approach him like we deserve to be in his presence, he already knows what we're like. He already knows what's going on inside. He already knows our hearts and our lives and our action. And it doesn't phase him. He doesn't turn his back on us. And that's grace. The story continues as Jesus is arrested. And the disciples, they can't believe it. They never thought this would happen. They never thought Jesus would allow this to happen. In fact, they thought that there would be some miracle that Jesus would perform that would flatten the mob and they would all be free. In fact, uh, they're frustrated. And Peter, taking things into his own hands, he reaches for his sword and he swings it across as if to take the head off of the high priest's servant, Malchus, and as he swings, Malchus sees it coming, and like a matrix move, he he dips his head out of the way, and the sword only clips off his ear, and without hesitation, Jesus, he reaches down, and he picks up the lifeless ear with the not-yet-pierced hands, and he takes the ear, and cupping Malchus's face with one hand, he reattaches the ear to the other, That's grace. The ones coming to tear apart Jesus' flesh have now had their flesh healed by Jesus. The ones coming with swords to arrest Jesus have now been cut by the sword and have been healed by the hand of grace. And Jesus shouts to the universe without using any words, as he holds Malchus' face and he reattaches his ear as if to say, He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the advocate. I am the deliverer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I am am grace. God's grace is so often not heard in today's time. We're quick to point the finger of judgment and we're we're slow to give grace. And so often God gets a bad picture of who He is because we filter Him through our own image of what grace looks like. Grace is something no one deserves. You don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. We're sinners, and we'll never be good enough for eternal life with Him. Yet because of God's grace shown through Jesus, we are made perfect. And no matter how big your sin is, God's grace is bigger. In fact, that's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, but where sin increased... Grace increased all the more. If you have an ear this morning, may you listen and hear God's grace in this next song.
taken to the governor, Pilate, who plays a game of knotted or nose-goes with Herod as they pass Jesus back and forth, as they're trying to figure out who has the jurisdiction and, more importantly, the responsibility of this decision of what happens to Jesus. Jurisdiction is a funny thing. Uh, our church sits in a very funny place in Marietta. We've got a Marietta address. We're in Cobb County, but yet we are in the city of Marietta. I just was at a, a city council meeting not too long ago where there was Cobb County police officers and Marietta City police officers both there. And they, they put a, a map of the city and the county on the screen as they showed the difference between Cobb County officers and Marietta City police officers. And our church sits in, sits in this uh, tiny little niche of the city of Marietta on the north part of Marietta. A half mile up the road, you're in Cobb County, and a half mile down the road, you're in Cobb County as well. But we sit in the city of Marietta, which isn't a big deal until it comes to getting permits. The city of Marietta is known for being um, tough or having a lot of red tape to cut through versus Cobb County, which is much easier Robert Esco, one of our elders and who is also an architect, he and I have both been to the city several times as, as we've talked about retaining walls and waterfalls and signage and paving. And it's kind of a hassle sometimes. In fact, as we were talking about signage, we went to the city of Marietta that sent us to county stuff because we're talking a, a, the, a thoroughfare here on Cobb Parkway who also sent us to the Georgia Department of Transportation. Now you wanna talk about a headache Try calling GDOT. 
I can't tell you how many different people and departments I talked to as they shuffled me from one person to the next to the next as I got the runaround as people were arguing over jurisdiction. And that is what was happening with Pilate and Herod. They both didn't want responsibility and neither wanted the jurisdiction of what was happening with Jesus. And so he was passed back and forth between the two over and over again. But it's in Pilate's court where this uh, human trial over the innocence of a God is happening that the villain in our story is introduced. Now, there could be an argument for lots of different people in this story to be the villain Satan, obviously, is the biggest one. Yeah, he's a villain. Um, What about the priests? What about Pilate? What about Herod? What about Judas, the betrayer? Or Peter, the denier? Uh, What about the crowd? There's so many different villains in our story. But I think one of the most impactful and important villains in our story is Barabbas. You remember Barabbas? You've heard of him before. You know, he's the guilty one that goes free. He's the guilty one that gets pardoned because of the innocent substitute. And let's talk about innocence for a minute. Uh, Luke does a masterful job of pointing to the innocence of Jesus. In fact, three times in just a few verses, Luke records Pilate's words in innocence of Jesus. Uh, In Luke chapter 23, verse 15, he says, Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate says, he's not worthy of death. He's innocent. In verse 20, he says, Pilate addressed them one more, once more, desiring to release Jesus. He says, there's nothing wrong with him. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. In verse 22, a third time, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him nothing deserving of death. All throughout the chapter, Luke pays extra attention to the innocence of Jesus. That he's fully innocent. He's blameless. He's perfect. He's done nothing wrong. He is completely innocent. In Mark's version of this story, Mark brings up an interesting tradition that the Jews had, or the the Romans had, during this, this festival this time, because they would often bring a prisoner and Pilate would pardon them. It doesn't sound like a great idea to me, but it was a tradition that they did. I mean, we have traditions like that too in our country. In fact, every Thanksgiving, just before Turkey Day, there's a tradition of the President of the United States pardoning a big turkey. In fact, here's the video of what happened just before last Thanksgiving Day. Let's talk to you for a second, because I'm going to do something that you're going to be very happy about. Uh Uh-oh, that looks like a dangerous bird. It just escaped. Wow. Butter, I wish you a lot of luck. But I, I hereby grant you a full and complete And Pilate, again trying to manipulate the system and manipulate the people, he doesn't give them a choice of which prisoner to release. That's the tradition they could choose. Instead, Pilate gives them Barabbas. Barabbas? Oh man, this guy was bad. 
He was the worst of the worst. He was the most guilty of all the guilty. In fact, Luke writes in chapter 23, verse 19, he says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Barabbas was a rebel. He was a con artist. He was the one that would stir up the people against the government. He was a murderer. And because he was a murderer, he sat on death row waiting for his execution, waiting for his last meal. And you know what? He deserved it. Basically, he was guilty of rebellion deserving death, which is in stark contrast to the words that Pilate describes Jesus in verse 22, where Pilate says, I've found in him no grounds for death. (laughs) And so we find ourselves in the middle of this unbelievable dichotomy in this story, a dichotomy between two people. You've got Jesus, the innocent one that is about to be murdered. And you've got Barabbas, a murderer who is about to be given innocence. You have Jesus who yearns to save those in rebellion. And you have Barabbas, the one that wants to stir anyone up into rebellion. You have Jesus who humbly and willingly accepted death on the cross. And you have Barabbas who would do anything and everything to get out of death on a cross. And if you haven't figured it out yet, you and I are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. We are the villains in this story. We are the guilty ones. We're the ones that deserve death and the death penalty. We're the sinners. In fact, Paul puts it in Romans 3.23. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. Three chapters later, Paul says these words, the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners and we deserve what's coming to us. We deserve the death penalty. That's the consequence for our rebellion. That's the wage of our actions and the wage of our sins. But Jesus, the hero, he took the punishment. He took our punishment. He took the villain's punishment when he died on the cross. For the next few moments, as you listen to this wonderful song, may you contemplate the unbelievable gift of Jesus. Oh 
part about the villain in this story that you can't miss because it shows how truly wonderful the hero really is. And it's in his name, Barabbas. It's not a beautiful name. It's not a real pretty name that rolls off your tongue real easily. I wonder how his mama picked his name. It could have been a family name or maybe she found it in a baby name book. Barabbas. It comes from two Hebrew words. Bar and Abba. And in Hebrew, Bar means son. And in Abba, you probably know, means father. Which means that Barabbas, that murdering, lying, deceitful, rebellious killer, is the son of the father. He represents you and me, which is good news. Because the one that was far from God, because of Jesus, has now become son of God. In fact, that's how Paul puts it 
In the book Galatians, he writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel message. This is the good news for humans. This means that we aren't known because of our sin, but we are known because of Jesus. We are now known as sons and daughters of the Father. How beautiful it is to have a a new name, a new identity, not a sinner, but a son. This weekend, so long ago, the tomb was found empty. It was found empty because Jesus claimed victory over death. He claimed victory over sin. He claimed victory for sinners and named them sons and daughters. And one day soon, I can't wait for him to call me and you by name and says, son of the father and daughter of the father, come home to live with me forever. And I can't wait for that day where we get to be together with Jesus forever. What a day that will be. There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome And the grave is overwhelmed The victory He is risen from the dead And I will rise when He calls my name No more sorrow, no more pain I will rise on eagle's wings before
when he calls my name no more sorrow no more pain i will rise on eagle's wings before my